This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage and the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders. Keep your coins protected with the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. Check out the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders and all the other coin collecting accessories at AmosAdvantage.com. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the first 2020 episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a difficult but hopefully thought-provoking episode in store for you. I think for the first time, trivia is going to be taking sort of center stage of this episode as we talk about the legacies of a couple of problematic numismatists who have come up as a result of our trivia questions, uh, Walter Breen and William Sheldon. But we also have This Week in History and This Week in Coin World History. So we've got a mix of content, but we're going to probably be devoting a good chunk of this episode to a, uh, to a discussion of those very fraught figures. Absolutely. And just a general reminder, as we're in the new year, if you are enjoying what we're doing, please subscribe through whatever podcast platform you're listening to us. We've received several collectors reach out to us in recent weeks. We do appreciate that as we think about future shows. That has been really helpful, and we will even make some callbacks to those inquiries in future episodes. So the trivia this week, the reason that this episode is a little heavier is because the question from last week was, in what year was Walter Breen's Encyclopedia of the United States Half Sense, 1793 to 1857, what year was that book published? The answer, Chris, do you know at all? This is before your time, I know. <laughs> Although this is a novice level question. However, in the context of when the Coin World Trivia Game was released, it makes sense that, okay, you know, it was still relatively fresh in the minds of the players in the game. Yeah, indeed. So I actually do know this one. Uh, I'm familiar with Walter Breen's Complete Encyclopedia of U.S. and Colonial Coins. That's the Colonial Coins. This is the half Well, no, no, yeah. Well, so of U.S. and Colonial Coins is the name of the volume that I'm familiar with. That was originally published in 1977. Is that the one we're talking about? No, we're talking about the half cents. Oh, the half cent book. I looked yes. up, I am familiar with, rather, the overall encyclopedia. So his half cent volume, I was after that sometime in the 80s. I'm, I'm honestly not sure. Yeah. Well, you're right. Give that guess of sometime in the 80s. It was 1984, which, uh, you know, how Orwellian. But um, I was but a lad then. You were not uh, yet a flicker in your parents' eye. But um, yeah, my my older brother wasn't born until 1991. So yeah, so I would would not be in existence for another 12 years. Yeah, 1984. And this was uh, sort of late in what would be Breen's career. His career was, uh, I guess, derailed or sidetracked, thankfully, by the law caught up with him. Walter Breen, for those who aren't familiar, is an important but troubling figure in U.S. numismatics. From a scholarship standpoint, he is well known for the books you mentioned, the book I mentioned. He has just voluminous, an amazing intellect, knew quite a bit about coinage. 
and uh, did much work to encapsulate that in written form. There are problems with his research methodology, however, that led to um, if he didn't know things and couldn't find answers, he speculated a lot. Uh, sometimes those musings were correct. Many other times they were not. Subsequent research has found those to be the case in, in various aspects. I'm not sure. Which... So it's, it's, it's basically fair to say that some of his conclusions were arrived at through his own sort of sense of logic and his own sense of his research as opposed to anything particularly concrete. And some of his attributions are also disputed or there are some controversies surrounding some of his attributions. Yes. So and his his scholarship was voluminous, but as you point out, uh, more than occasionally flawed now, in different and, ways. And I don't think there would be as many problems today when we look back at his research, his approach, and, and what was published, if it were couched in the appropriate terms, if it were said, you know, we don't know, this is what I think, you know. Right. Um, if there was sort of a caveat yes, attached I, to I, conclusions. Researchers in whatever field, but especially, I think, especially numismatics, at least what I've been exposed to now for 16 years plus, 20 years, if you will, we know that there aren't answers to some questions. There are a lot of questions that we can't answer, haven't answered yet, and may never be answered. Certainly when you're talking about like ancient coins or some other things, there are hordes that are discovered that provide new data, new information. You find and, that a lot. Um, and, and, and I think that any numismatist or historian would agree that there is room in high quality, well-researched, serious, you know, academic work in numismatics or in history for a certain degree of speculation Assuming, as you put it, Jeff, that it's couched in language that confirms that it is speculation. I mean, if and, Breen and had, a, not had a really good educated <laughs> guess, yeah, if, if Breen had a really good educated guess about something and he had said, you know, to the best of my knowledge, you know, this, I, I believe this to be true. It's or not because of this and this, I kind of triangulate and come right. to this you, conclusion. You kind of have to make a bit of a case for yourself. And then, you know, if you're going to make those statements, and then you also have to, to the extent to which you don't have documentary evidence substantiating claims you've made, it is incumbent on the researcher to, you know, to make clear that there may not be that kind of documentary evidence. And Breen, yeah. I think in a number of instances, failed to do that. But his shortcomings, to the extent that leaps of, of faith or leaps of logic that he engaged in, to the extent that those were problematic, I think that his work would not have not generated the amount of controversy that it has generated and it wouldn't be the subject of such consternation if it hadn't have been for his absolutely abhorrent, horrifying sort of personal personal life. behavior. Yeah. And that's well, the and and and, and I, it's I, my I, belief. I think Sorry. most most collectors and researchers, they compartmentalize. They address one and then address the other separately. Breen as you can find in multiple places online and 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 some we'll uh, we'll post a couple of links yeah. to um, reputable accounts that lay yeah. out in in detail what is it he's accused of doing but well, essentially and, and, and what he was found guilty of i mean yeah, not yeah, only yeah, right, right. there, yeah. there well, are what many he's accused of doing and then he's been found he was found guilty as you said of a number of specific uh, things in a court of but, law and in fact confessed publicly in the early 1990s to having sexually abused a number of children and yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and and having actually – and not even in a – which in no way makes it at all better, but not even in a particularly clandestine way. In the 1960s, he actually penned a very, very long uh, basically defense of – Pederasty. Know, yeah. Of pederasty, of, of older yeah. men having sexual relationships with young boys. And I mean so he, he, he was advocating for his 
lifestyle, if that's what you want to call it, pretty vociferously. And, you know, and it was kind of an open secret in the industry. And it took until the late 1980s for it finally you know, up with him. I mean, well, you know. but there were a couple of convictions. His first conviction was in 1954. So between 1954 and then when he was finally arraigned and put in prison on much more serious charges, quite a few years elapsed in that yeah. time. And there were quite a few victims. Who knows yes. the untold number of victims? Yeah, uh, we don't but, even know the total. He was uh, eventually arrested in 1991, and he was sentenced shortly thereafter to 10 years in prison, where he ultimately died uh, in 1993. You know, you, you talk to folks who've been in the hobby long enough, and they know, uh, they heard stories. It sort of reminds me of what happened with Harvey Weinstein, where actresses would tell each other in, in sort of, you know, there was this, the whisper channel, if you will, where they were alerting them, hey, stay away from this guy or watch out or whatever. He's a creep. And, and the same thing was happening in numismatics, especially with young numismatists. There were folks who witnessed some of these things or experienced them firsthand, uh, had people step in and say, no, you know, you don't, want to hang out with that guy and whatever. So it is a, um, it is definitely tragic for those folks who were affected by his evil, but it's important to look back when you weigh the, the scope of who this man was and what he meant to the hobby that, uh, for as much, uh, good he may have contributed, that good is outweighed in multiples with um, the evil that that he enacted both inside and outside the hobby. I don't think one can say with certainty that his evil and, and illegal acts were limited to folks inside the, the numismatic no, space. I don't think that's that at all. Certainly so, not, but I think there is a – I think part of the reason that numismatics and the numismatic industry to some extent is not associated with Walter Breen because they're – I don't – I can't – possibly envision any plausible argument that would link Breen's interest in numismatics to his horrifying personal habits. But I think part of the reason that the sort of numismatic industry is not only very touchy about the the subject of Walter Breen, but I think that there's also his brilliance, I think, to some extent blinded some people to the horrifying aspects of his of his personality and of his personal life. And I think that, you know, him being so brilliant naturally, you know, attracted young collectors to him and made him someone who the industry saw as desirable to the extent he, that he was had a lot in a sense knowledge. a rock star. You know, as, people, as an educator, I mean, as, they, yeah, they people saw, would come to him for information and confirmation and discussion, and and so it it speaks to this, you know, the the idea that you know anybody can put blinders on because of these things. That's why you know another gentleman uh, that. We're talking about today, gentlemen. I shouldn't have even said that. Another individual, uh, Dr. William Sheldon, was another person who was known in the industry for many good things, but ultimately would uh, come to be known for the thefts of coins from the American Numismatic Society and also in a larger academic sense for some questionable things he did uh, involving Yale University, I think it was. So Sheldon is another painful and complex figure in the history of numismatics. And it's one that actually I, I learned um, about. Sheldon I is another name that I was familiar with as a relatively inexperienced um, numismatist, particularly one who doesn't have the benefit of you know, decades of hindsight and personal experience with some of these figures. Sheldon is someone who I've I've also heard of. Sheldon was a like Breen, a, a very prominent numismatist. His specialty was early American coinage, particularly uh, half cents and large cents. In fact, the name Sheldon 
is still used to refer to the variety uh, cataloging numbers that are used to uh, describe different uh, varieties of large and half cents actually still bears his name. They're still called Sheldon varieties. So Oh, sure. Just as his, there are pieces that bear Breen you know, names. So, so these are names that are still, you know, that still have currency in this hobby, pun only mildly intended, that still have a lot of, a lot of currency and cachet in this hobby to the extent that their research is still so widely referenced that certain coins are still known by the designation for these figures. Now, Sheldon came a little bit before uh, Walter Breen. Walter Breen was born, I believe, in the early 1930s, whereas Sheldon was born in 1898. And aside from his work in numismatics, Sheldon was also, he was an academic specifically. Physiology um, or something? Yeah, like? he was a, he was a psycho, well, he worked in psychology and, but his work also crossed into anatomy, physiology, um, sort of human health. He was he his work covered a broad range, but he's essentially controversial for two separate and not really related reasons. The the first of which is that he's accused of stealing a number of coins from the American Numismatic Society over the course of his research. He's also accused of a couple of other instances of theft and and things of that nature, which is problematic numismatically because some of the objects that he was using for his research he wound up pocketing, which casts <laughs> switching out switching out lesser examples or, or yes. like you say, cast fakes and things. It's an astonishing story that yeah, uh, of and how that happened and how how he was discovered. I believe. Um, I, I don't want to say that the name wrong or, or name the wrong person, but there were individuals in, I guess, the 1980s or 90s who discovered this. And it's just, it's it was, just it, a, a cautionary tale. It, it was, it was a, a, a massive, it was a pretty extraordinary pattern of criminality, just in terms of its scale and its sort of brazenness yeah. to some extent. Brazen, and the length, yeah, good, the amount of time over which he was doing it. So he, he stole a number of very valuable items and that, that tainted his research insofar as you have to wonder, you know, I'm sure there's a very genuine interest and passion that was driving his research. But you also have to think, you know, when you're engaging in that kind of grift, you know, to what extent is the research a front for trying to build your own collection illegally? Which, I mean, obviously there's no way of knowing precisely, you know, knowing what his frame of mind and motivations were, but... That said, it casts his his research and his sort of his conduct and stature in the numismatic industry. It, it casts him essentially as as a thief, a grifter, and just generally a figure who's less than reputable numismatically. As much joy you might take in reading some of his very amazing, inviting words in Penny Whimsy. Yep, you know about the hobby and 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 coin collecting and and sense. Uh, you can't separate that from yes. the, the the things that we know about him later and to a lesser extent what he did extra numismatically outside numismatic. right yeah so and and that gets to that gets to the sort of second group of of problematic episodes that involve sheldon so sheldon's work as a psychologist um as we alluded to uh, earlier intersected with fields of uh, human physiology in the sense that I don't know how much medical value is still held in these beliefs. I think that most of it has been dismissed as either pseudoscience or not particularly helpful today in a clinical context. But Sheldon was essentially trying to link 
the prevalence of certain psychological, whether it was a psychological illness or whether it was different personality types. He was essentially trying to connect human physiology to human psychology, saying, you know, if you, you know, if you have this kind of a back problem psychologically, you might end up with a certain issue. Or basically, he was trying to establish links between physical characteristics and different sort of psychological states, illnesses. It, it was part of a, a larger or- body of. Or work. my my more sinister take. He just wanted to see people naked. I, I don't well, know. And and, you know. and that and that gets into the real issue is not I mean, only because these were undergrads. These were folks coming well, into right. So that and college, that gets, right. Yeah. So that gets into his connection. So irrespective of the sort of academic rigor or uh, potential, you know, socio political implications of implying that people with certain body types have certain psychologies. It reminds me a little bit in some sense of phrenology, the idea of, oh, well, if your skull is this shape, then you, you know, then you're likely to have these qualities. It's it's that kind of essentializing science. Hokama. Yeah, it, it's a kind of essentializing science that has largely fallen out of favor and in some cases been identified as often racist or sexist or white supremacist or there, there are a lot of really ugly associations between those kind of essentializing sciences. But irrespective of the sort of sociopolitical risks of that sort of work, Sheldon was one of a number of people working in this sort of milieu. Now to what Jeff is alluding to, Sheldon was one of a number of academics who participated in what is now generally referred to as the Ivy League nude photo scandal. There might be a, a title that is is more commonly used, but essentially what happened was between the 1940s and the 1970s, researchers at a number of uh, prominent schools, most of the schools in the Ivy League, uh, the Seven Sisters schools, I believe Swarthmore, uh, Swarthmore was another. There's a, a longer list of, of different schools, but a number of prominent American universities had a policy in this time period between the 1940s and the 1970s where undergraduates, many undergraduates, I'm not sure if every undergraduate, but many of the undergraduates were required as a, as part of the process of enrolling in the college to take full nude photos, backside and front, entirely nude, so that these researchers, William Sheldon being one of the most prominent, could analyze them. The idea being that, you know, we're trying to assess the physical qualities of these American kids that gave them the, you know, intellectual ability to you know, be admitted to these impressive schools. The idea being to try to suss out, you know, positive uh, physical traits that, you know, correlate to uh, high intelligence and things like that, which I realize it's not the same thing, but that has a couple of eerie moments of rhyming with eugenics. I mean, I don't, I think that that's kind of a, I think that that's a, a very, very dangerous academic project, but Sheldon was famously deeply involved in this program. So there are actually a number of most of the photos have been destroyed. Beginning in the mid 1990s, uh, there was a wholesale uh, destruction uh, that was begun of these photos, and the vast majority of them are gone now. But it still raises questions about um, consent to have nude photos taken. You know, to what extent uh, were these kids? Could these kids be said to be consenting if their you know admission and enrollment in a college was contingent on their providing these photos? You know, if if any of these photos got out and were used for blackmail or, or nefarious purposes, or just used for purposes outside of of an academic you know yeah, study, quasi academic or pseudo academic. Yeah, science. I mean, again, a lot of a lot of that work. I'm not a I'm I'm, I'm not a doctor. I I'm not a, a medical researcher. A lot of the work that they did, I believe, has been generally dismissed. But you, people with a a more sophisticated science and medical background than I could could look into this and tell me if I'm wrong. But 
generally speaking, Sheldon's participation in that has also been seen as morally dubious at best and yeah. you know morally and ethically compromising at worst. So he's and, another fairly problematic figure. And to round out the uh, triumvirate of uh, bad actors uh, in the hobby, we can't talk about these two figures without at least mentioning John J. Ford, whose mm-hmm. just enormous collection of amazing artifacts was sold over the course of something like 23 or so auctions in the um, mid to late 2000s, the sale of his collection sort of began around the time I joined CoinWorld as an intern in summer of 2003 and continued on for several years uh, through Stacks, uh, Stacks Bowers then. But Ford is another problematic figure, less so extra numismatically, less so outside the hobby. But Ford is somebody who, for all his research, he was a very closed individual. He kept a lot of his research to himself. He was very um, viewed it as proprietary, and he he would use that information to um, to further his collecting and and dealing. Uh, whereas a lot of numismatics today, in theory, feels open. You know, I can go find auction records, and and all sorts of information is available freely. Uh, at, in so many places. That wasn't obviously the case 60, 70 years ago, 80 years ago. And so the legwork that he undertook, he clung to that more more rigidly, but it also allowed for uh, what Ford is known for today is the generation uh, commissioning of alleged gold uh, fake now, the gold was not fake, but the, the bars are fake in as much as they were representing bars of the West, Old West. And as, as much as a fascination as we have with the Old West today, you know, some hundred plus years, 130, 40, 50 years later, you can imagine how, how that there was a connection, how great a connection and the interest there was only 70 years you know, later, right? So in the 1950s and 60s, you know, you're, you're not as far out from from these events as you are today, Ford would take known miners and, and known entities and just fabricate gold bars to represent the items that these miners, uh, you know, the these um, companies had had supposedly found, and it it took the work of. Eric Newman, Ted Buttrey, Theodore Buttrey, and others. There's been a lot of contention in the hobby about this. There was a famous showdown, I believe, at an ANA where individuals representing both parties uh, were there and and rather bellicose. And it's one of these stories that illustrates sort of the the rougher side of the hobby, the more challenging side, because we all we all love to have fun. We want to um, we want to learn. We want to hopefully you know get our money back, make some money, whatever down the road. In this landscape of humanity, any aspect of humanity can be reflected through the numismatic space, just as with other hobbies. I mean, there there are folks who've taken, um, who have forged documents or who've um, generated fake baseball cards or whatever. You know, anytime there's there's a potential profit motive, uh, there will be some bad actors. Yeah, fraud um, fraud is not in any sense unique to numismatics or the numismatic not. industry. So but, it's, but it is interesting to to view these episodes and learn from them and then reflect on them and and okay, what lessons can I use from that 
in today and, in, in my um, in in my participation and and luckily there's a lot of um, there's a lot of resources that didn't exist 30 40 50 years ago that can help you know there's so many Facebook groups dedicated to tracking uh, fake coins listed on eBay disseminating names of sellers who are end up stealing things or don't deliver items as promised or or back out of of, of deals there's just the landscape is so much different the flip side of that is there are some individuals who viewing that landscape have exploited it you know they buy something on eBay and they try to sell it elsewhere or resell it on eBay and they don't they can't get it sold so they turn around and return it under the 30-day return guarantee and and the seller the original seller who's just trying to make a living or, or make a hobby gets the raw end of the deal. So these things are going to exist in the hobby they have and they will, unfortunately, but uh, certainly exploring them is a, a good thing to do uh, and as, as a collector to, to really just, you know, arm yourself, educate yourself and, and be aware. And it's important to reflect, I think, as well on the often painful legacy uh, involved in in certain aspects of numismatics, as there are in, in any form of history. I don't think that anyone who claims to be interested in history or to study history very seriously can can possibly avoid painful episodes coming up and having to deal with legacies of people who are eminently human, but you know can encapsulate the full range of human capacity, both for good and ill, and. In the case of someone like Walter Breen and to a lesser extent, William Sheldon, you have to reckon not only with their professional misconduct, but the their sort of personal and I guess, you know, Sheldon's ranges on, on academic, though. I don't know that academic misconduct so much as just participation in, you know, mass gathering of nude images, which strikes, I think, at least the modern sensibility uh, rather wrongly, to say the least. But you know, it also seems important to consider the extent to which we're willing to venerate truly brilliant people. And that's not to say that that brilliant people are evil or will go out and do bad things just by dint of their brilliance. There are countless amazingly brilliant people in numismatic levels anywhere else who are perfectly upstanding, wonderful people. But, you know, part of the reason I have to imagine, and I think there's some circumstantial and documentary evidence to back me up on this. I think part of the reason that Breen was allowed to get away with what he was doing for as long as he he was was largely because a lot of people, you know, valued what he had to say and and saw his his research and his and his writing ability and his research ability, which whatever its its shortcomings structurally and and, and, and the and, potential for profit therein. Exactly. And I think a lot of people were willing to you know, look the other way. People were willing, or in some cases, willing to defend him. I mean, to this day, my research for this episode, you know, I dug through a number of articles on Breen and a couple on Sheldon. And I looked and I started looking at comment threads on, cause this is, this is not, this is a debate that hasn't died. I mean, Breen, Breen yeah, died in prison so in 1993. And, you know, these, these discussions have, have continued in, in the intervening 20, almost 30 years. There are still people to this day, if you go to, you know, I looked at an NGC, you know, on NGC's, uh, one of their discussion forums, you know, I, I scanned through hundreds and hundreds of posts on a couple of different threads talking about these exact issues. And there are still a lot of people who are sort of Breen apologists. There are people who, you know, insist, well, you know, his numismatic work, you know, his, his personal transgressions have no bearing on his, on his professional work. And, 
you know, you have to understand his professional work entirely separately from his personal conduct. And I think that there is a degree of truth to that. I don't know that I'm willing to buy into that wholesale. I think that we have to consider however brilliant someone is, there will forever be an asterisk next to the name of Walter Breen. And it's a pretty large and significant asterisk. And, you know, and, and reckoning with that legacy and reckoning with that sort of shared heritage is something that I think each and every one of us, whether we're a casual collector, someone working in the publishing space, someone working for an auction house or a grading company, Whoever we are in the industry, I think each and every one of us has a, a, an individual and collective responsibility to reflect on and reckon with these things and to approach these figures and their work with you know, a, an appropriate degree of, of uh, skepticism and with the, the proper context. I think that's Absolutely. important that we, that we all engage in that. So I think that's, and- that's about what I have to say on it. <laughs> Whew. Uh, exhale. That, uh, that's heavy. <laughs> that was that was a lot to soak up right away, especially to start out the new year. Uh, what got us there? That was the trivia question. Yeah. Um, that reminds us, though, that we're going to have a much lighter topic uh, for this week uh, for you to answer next week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, trivia question, the trivia won't bring us down such a such a dark it, alley for quite it, a while. It will be, it will truly be trivial. Uh, the question not is expert level, although I think this is more suited for novice level. To me, it's it's one of these things that I've just known and is you know have soaked up in, in early on, and certainly I know you have. But you're not going to give the answer right away. So uh, we're going to have that answer next week, and hopefully you can chime in on Facebook. The question this week is: During World War II, Philippine coinage was minted in what country? So Philippine coinage, you got to strike somewhere. Uh, Philippines didn't have their own sovereign mint at this time. Many countries around the world today don't have their own mints. They contract with other facilities, mints elsewhere. So, you know, somebody like the Royal Canadian Mint or the Royal Mint or the French Mint, they do a lot of circulating coins for all over the world. Those are probably the three most dominant. Then you have uh, Royal Australian Mint to a lesser degree. Japan Mint's been uh, engaged in trying to get circulating coin work in the last four or five years. So there, there are a lot of mints that have excess capacity. And they want to provide this service for uh, nations that don't have the means, don't have the uh, methodology. So in what nation were Philippine coins struck during World War II? It's funny. That's I'm your- actually I'm, – I, I can't talk about it in any detail without giving it away. But I am writing an article germane you'll, to this topic at the moment. So yes. You'll uh, mention it next week. Yeah. Ne- so. Next week. Next couple weeks, we'll, uh, we'll get into it. But uh, that is something I'm, uh, I'm working on. But anyway, Jeff, this week, uh, the very first week of this year, the very first week of uh, 2020, what, uh, what was happening during uh, some of the very first weeks of other years back through uh, the annals of numismatic history, this so week in history. our foray into the, the week that was, or this week in history, let's turn the, uh, the time machine back to January 11th, 1784. What was happening then? Well, that day was the day that the Spanish brig of war, the El Cazador, sailed from Veracruz, Mexico, with 400,000 pesos of newly minted silver coins. Where was the El Cazador headed? It was on its way to New Orleans. It was lost at sea. Now, it was going to New Orleans because Carlos III, King of Spain, needed to prop up the currency that wasn't the paper money that wasn't backed by anything. There was no silver or gold. This was uh, Spanish territory at the time, Louisiana, before the U.S. bought it. And um, I've seen 400,000, 450,000. There, there was an enormous amount of silver pesos and uh, the, mostly the um, 
the eight reals, pieces of eight Spanish coins that was intent to go there. I've seen a number as uh, 37,500 pounds of silver. Carlos III, he entrusted his best captain, Gabriel de Campos y Pineda, to command the ship. However, the ship sank. It sank in 1784. We don't know exact, the exact date. It was early on that year, obviously. Veracruz, Mexico to, to um, New Orleans wasn't that far. So you have to think it, you know, maybe a couple of weeks. I, I, I'm, I'm no nautical expert, but it was listed as missing at sea. Well, what happened in 1993, a trawler captained by Jerry Murphy out of Pascagoula, Mississippi, the trawler named Mistake, ironically, um, <laughs> was 50 miles south of New Orleans when they netted a nice haul, uh, a net with silver coins. Uh, these were coins that had been struck in Mexico, dated 1783. Now, as with any, you know, we all, uh, numismatists, I think, love stories of shipwrecks. And, uh, you know, this one's no different, but as with shipwrecks, there's litigation, there's, you know, it, it was found in 1993, but it, my gosh, it took forever, quote unquote. It wasn't until December 2004 that the executors of the estate that owned the, the silver hired a numismatist to get involved in appraising it. And then the coins, once appraised, started entering the market. They are El Cazador. That, by the way, that means hunter. It's um, lots of uh, interesting, lots of Mexican restaurants will be Cazador, El Cazador, Cazadores, Hunters. Coins from that wreck are uh, common, ubiquitous. It's fun to own something that has a story like that, a connection. Uh, yes, there's sea salvage, there's damage to the silver, there's, but, but by gosh, it was, it was on the ocean floor for 200 plus years. So, uh, and in some cases, some wrecks, uh, the Atocha, was in the 1620 range. So, you know, you're talking 400 years ago. So lots of fun history in that. Isn't that right, Chris? It is. And it's funny that you mention um, the Cazador because the very first coin that I ever bought at my very first coin show was actually a, uh, a Spanish two real from the wreck of the Cazador that was being sold. They're being sold in a big bin. They came with a little certificate of authenticity from the company that recovered them. And my very first coin show that I attended in what I can't remember whether it was successful or not in a bid to get the coin collecting merit badge for Boy Scouts, a couple of, uh, of, of fellow scouts from my troop and I went with a couple of parents to uh, it was the Bay State coin show, I believe, in 2007. So I have a, a very small uh, connection to uh, to the Cazador. It was my, my very first coin. It was not the first coin I ever bought, but it was the first coin I ever got at a coin show. was uh, a piece from the, the wreck of the, uh, of the El Cazador. It's just funny because as I told you this was the history, you know, you I could hear you light up and you're going, oh my gosh, this is so perfect. The, you know, the congruency yeah. of, of this with your numismatic backstory. Yeah, I, I actually I actually own a piece, I think, again, a, a two reals I got in more recently, but uh, it's nice to just have something. You, yeah, this is a shipwreck coin. So. And it's always fun. I, I find that something that I've done is if I, if I buy a coin that I intend to keep, that is to say, you know, that if I don't want to, you know, I'm not buying it to, with an intention of eventually selling it. If it's something that I want to keep for myself, I tend to write down who I bought it from or what, where, you know, what store I bought it from or show uh, and the date that I bought it because I get such a kick out of, I don't do this with everything because that would be a, a pretty long endeavor for me. But, you know, it's fun to know, even if it's not a famous pedigree, 
it's kind of fun to know who has owned coins before you, you know, where they've come from, who else might have uh, might have owned them. So it's always fun to have little personal connections to to different series and uh, and, and individual coins. So it's absolutely. And, it's, and, it's I mean, I've one. even seen um, not that there's much uh, the market reflects much value for this, but sometimes you can find coins in the original two by two, the you know the paper envelope from a dealer. I have a French coin that's common as dirt, one of those bronze one centimes from the late 1800s, but it's in a Bulawa two by two. There's uh, David Bulawa, I believe was the husband and he died and his wife, Catherine continued the business. She is a numismatic hall of fame member if, or should be, if she's not, uh, she died just in the last few years, but the Bulawa name and certainly out of, um, Philadelphia, I believe, uh, certainly Pennsylvania, it is one that had a long trajectory and impact in numismatics. And so the coin is common. You know, you can find them in dollar bins and whatever. But to have that and go, gosh, yeah, this is this is in a Bulawa two by two, and it looks period 1960s. So you get a sense of, you know, this is. I couldn't tell you. I don't even remember where I got it. What's, you know, who knows who had it before me? But it, it's a nice link to history, and I think that's what excites a lot of collectors in general. Is, oh sure, I have a um, I have a, a Corsican, a small uh, Corsican silver coin from 1808 featuring a bust of Napoleon. Didn't cost me very much. It's a common coin, not not very rare or anything like that. And I, I didn't spend very much on it. But what's cool is that it came with a little envelope. You know, there's no name or anything on it, but someone wrote you know a series of details about the coin and then the date in which they put the coin into the envelope, 1910. So I have both the coin and the envelope that it sat in for probably uh, you know a century or so, or you know at least it's possible it sat in there for a long time. So awesome. yeah, it's fun. It's it's fun stuff, but. We also, so, you know, as long as we're reflecting on on history, you know, we're we're in, into the new year. So for our, you know, we try to take uh, each week a, a peek into an old issue of Coin World, and we take whatever date we're on, you know, whatever date the podcast is being recorded or uh, released, you know, and we try to try to look back. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at our very first ever January issue. We're in a brand new year, so I decided to look back at the very first January issue of Coin World, which was published and released on January fifth. 1961. So Coinworld was founded in 1960, but it was founded in March of 1960. So we actually didn't have a January 1960 issue because Coinworld didn't quite exist yet. So we decided that since it's a brand new year, we'd look back at our very first January issue. So Jeff, what are we looking at for the uh, for the, the top story, letters to the editor so, for that so very okay. first January issue? A couple things jump out at me on the front page. This is uh, 1961. You know, you're you're fresh off a uh, presidential election year, and so the news relates to the Kennedy inaugural medal. John F. Kennedy had had just been elected in November, narrowly with uh, some <laughs> some support perhaps from his father. But the news in this and if issue, the movie and if the movie The Irishman is to be believed, also the mob. But that's go well yes if, 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 uh, if you can stumble through three and a half hours of a martin scorsese movie go watch it they they, they allude to that pretty strongly i don't know how much yeah. historical evidence they have but they do allude to it yeah so jfk though you know like all presidents since mckinley in the 1880s I believe it was, we'll get an inaugural medal after election. You know, there's going to be an inauguration. They're going to issue a medal to celebrate. This wasn't a practice that 
originated with Washington. It came later. Retroactive medals were issued for earlier presidents. It really grabbed hold in the 1880s, I believe, and then for subsequent presidencies until the current administration was something that continued as an official adjunct of the inaugural committee. So Medallic Art Company was chosen to strike the medals for Kennedy's inaugural. There was a large bronze and a large silver. These measure three inches each. The medal is notable because who designed it? Well, a guy by the name of Paul Manship. And Manship has gone down in the annals of American art history for his sculpture, including one that can be found at Rockefeller Center. His most famous work, the Statue of Prometheus. Uh, at Rockefeller Center in New York City. So here we have Medallic Arts Company, which was a New York firm at the time, striking a medal designed by a New York artist to celebrate the new president. That is understandably one of the main stories in the issue. I also, just in glancing at the the rest of the front page, it's funny to see that they had 36,666 subscribers at that point in the Young Coin World history. And there's a a section called Today's Chuckle, and it, it's something that dealers do even today, despite the fact that the phone technology has improved by leaps and bounds. Today's Chuckle is uh, from an irate Cincinnati coin dealer responding to the 10th person calling about the value of a coin that day. Hold it up to the telephone so I can see the condition. Uh, that is something that dealers say today. That is a, a problem that has vexed dealers from virtually the beginning, I guess. Well, with uh, you know FaceTime and other video calling services today, you could conceivably <laughs> hold you a coin could. up to the phone and show you could. I don't and, yes. uh, and then show a dealer. But that generally doesn't happen. So, what caught your eye on the inside, Chris? So, I was uh, scanning through the letters to the editor column. It's always interesting to see what people were writing into Coin World, and I found what was what I thought was kind of a, a nice little New Year's message written by um, a person by the name of Julian S. Marks of uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. So, right in uh, right in Coin World's backyard. The letter reads. Just a few thoughts for the new year, 1961. Perhaps the new year should be more renowned for its date than all the multiplicity of dates which developed during this present year. The new year will be the only year in this entire century in which the date will read the same either straightforward or turned upside down. It is now 80 years since this occurred before, since this occurred before in 1881 and 270 years since it happened before that in 1691. But wait until you check to see how long it will be before it happens again. I'll tell you. I 4,048 years, not until the year 6009. And if any coins are still in existence at that time, none of us will know it. <laughs> Which so, is, it's kind, of, it's, it's kind of a funny, it's a f- fun little thing to think about. You know, in 1961, they were reflecting on what it is that that, uh, that that date would look like. So I thought that was a, I thought that and, was a fun little, I thought that and, was a fun little letter. <laughs> yes. And that's a, a little, uh, you know, it's not just the date reads forwards and backwards like 2002. The specific thing, and this is flip it upside down and it reads the same. So that's funny. That's uh, fun. I don't think any of us are going to be around to witness that. Wow, Coins may be not be around we then. Were, uh, and um, <laughs> yeah, uh, certainly it is something to look forward to for those who are around at that time, if they are even aware. I, I, I of sincerely the- hope that it's some historian thousands of years in the future, in the year 6009, is going through early 21st century you know, American numismatic history and stumbles upon this podcast and can, and can reflect on our reflecting on an upside down year. 
So yes. with so, that, I think we're we, going to uh, sign off. We don't have an interview this week. We usually have an interview on the podcast, but we decided to devote most of our time to a discussion of uh, Sheldon and Breen, which we felt was uh, somewhat incomplete from uh, our references to them in the last episode. So we thought we would uh, we would talk about that and sort of share our reflections on the year ahead. So thank you for joining us this week, you know, coming along for the ride. We are excited for what 2020 uh, is going to offer and uh, opportunities to share stories with you and learn and communicate and uh, make, make new coin friends. If you are enjoying this, if you find uh, any sort of value, please subscribe and please reach out. Uh, please give us ideas. And um, we do love uh, hearing from you. So yeah, even if so, we, even if it takes us a little while to get here, to get to your message, we, we love hearing from people and, you know, we, we look forward to, to more community engagement and trying to build, you know, trying to build a little community around this podcast. So we're going to be trying, uh, trying hard in the in new year. So feel absolutely. free to keep on listening and, and uh, subscribing and, and reaching out. So, so with that in mind, until next time, happy, happy collecting. collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders, available at Amos Advantage. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. So head over to AmosAdvantage.com to check out the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders and all of the other coin collecting accessories available there. That's AmosAdvantage.com.